Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Bridget. I'm Colleen. And today we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Pooja Lakshman. And she just authored this book that is called Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness. And it says crystals, cleanses, bubble baths not included. So I love that title <laughs> of that book. I do too. Yeah. I, I saw her book on Maria Shriver's Sunday paper. And when I saw this book, I thought, this is really going to be a great book and a really good topic to for our listeners to talk about. I mean, she talks about all kinds of faux, the difference between faux self-care and real self-care and just things that will keep you stuck in life. So Colleen, how are things going, girl? Everything is good. I think, you know, now that it's May and it's Mental Health Awareness Month, I think this is the perfect time to have this episode go up. You know, one of the kind of not aha moments, but kind of highlighted moments when we were having this discussion was that she talked about how self-care is an internal job. Because we think to self-care, let's have a bubble bath, let's go get a massage. And those things are great. And for temporary purposes, they can relax you. But actual self-care is doing the work internally, setting back. She talks about the four different principles of real self-care, like setting boundaries and bringing in what matters most to you and how you have to deal with the guilt of setting boundaries. Because that's always something I right. have a problem with is like, you can't just set a boundary once because the person's so used to you doing everything that you have to mm-hmm. keep repeating it. And then you start feeling guilty because you've been yes. ingrained to yes. not have a boundary. And, you know, so it, it was really interesting how she talked about, you know, she talked about in the book, she talks about ways women get kind of um, seduced by faux self-care and how it's going to be so great. But if you really want to make change, you have to do the work internally. And I think that's really important for women to remember. So I think that's really good for mental health awareness. I think it's, you know, make sure you guys are checking out our Instagram, which will have a lot of stuff on there for mental health awareness month. Let's get started with Dr. Lakshman. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cold Topics, everybody. We are so excited today to have Dr. Pooja Lakshman on. She just wrote a really great book. It is Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. (laughs) I love that. Thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. The first thing that came to my mind was the difference between faux self-care and real self-care because it's hard enough for women in our demographic to not feel guilty to have self-care. But then you're like, well, there's a difference between what is real self-care and what is faux. Can you talk about the distinction? Yeah, absolutely. And the first thing I want to say is that I... As a psychiatrist, you know, I specialize in women's mental health. All of my patients are women. Most of them are mothers. <clears throat> I'm I'm now 39, almost 40, and I have a um a 10-month-old. Yeah, 10? Yeah, 10-month-old. <laughs> um so I don't want to add like I know how it feels to feel like you're not doing enough, feel guilty because you're not getting to the self-care. So this is all coming from a place of very very deep compassion. So it's not meant to give folks sort of another thing like, oh gosh, I'm not doing self-care, right? Um, You know, I start out the book by just sharing kind of patient examples, you know, like a patient who comes in and says, you know, Dr. Lakshman, I'm stressed out, I'm burnt out, I'm not sleeping well, 
I'm not eating well. Maybe I'm having hot flashes, right? And I feel like it's my fault because I should be meditating. I should go to yoga. I should do X, Y, Z because everyone's telling me that those are the things that are going to cure my problems. And I don't have time to do any of that. And then I feel bad because I call myself lazy. And I'm sort of constantly screaming in my practice, like, this isn't your fault. Like, this is actually, this isn't burnout. This is systemic betrayal at a huge social level, especially when we're talking about midlife, whatever that word means, midlife. I think that that's also, we could talk about that. You know, what is midlife? (laughs) Um, But like menopause, perimenopause, just the fact that there's such a dearth in research funding, right? When it comes to women's health, um, that we still don't know so much about women's bodies and reproductive system. Um, That is a social issue. That is because of patriarchy. That is because of sexism that's baked into the medical establishment. That's because of racism too, right? All of these different things are connected. Anyway, I've gone completely off track. The first like bit before we even dive into faux versus real is just, I just want everybody who's listening to understand that like, this isn't your fault. Like we are all swimming upstream and the reason we're swimming upstream is because our systems have completely let women down. So whether we're talking about the fact that, you know, the United States is still, you know, the only high income nation that doesn't have paid parental leave. The fact that 30 million Americans don't have health insurance, um, you know, all of these different systemic issues. So when we say like, oh, like a bubble bath, like just take a bubble bath and drink a glass of wine, I find that to be like condescending at best and like deeply, deeply infuriating. So the reason that I distinguish between faux self-care and real self-care is because none of my patients even have time for faux self-care. <laughs> and I define faux self-care as like the products and the practices that are sold to women. So whether it is like, you know, the essential oils, whether it is the massages, the bubble baths, the juice cleanses, um, all of those things that ask you to spend money on stuff that is supposedly going to help you get control of your life and make you feel like you're some semblance of sane. <laughs> um <laughs> Real self-care, on the other hand, is an internal process. It's your internal decision-making. It's how you make choices in your life around how you spend your time and your energy. Real self-care will always cause shifts in your relationships. Faux self-care will always keep you stuck in the status quo. So it's not that the bubble bath or the massage is bad or wrong, but it's that you have to do all of the internal real self-care work to actually get yourself to the right method that is then going to help shift the systems of power in your family life, in your work life, in your sense of self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you know something I got from your book that it's it's got to be, you know, these things, which are great, a massage feels wonderful, you know, I don't know if I really want a bubble bath. I think about all the stuff sitting in there in my own dirt. <laughs> but, um, but it's it's got to be, it's something that moves you, that 
these things are not going to be a fix-all. Like what they're advertising to be is this is going to cure you. And that one thing's not going to cure you. And I found it so interesting too in your book that, that I found out that real self-care was really a social movement, almost like civil rights movement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the kind of um, lineages for self-care actually comes from the Black queer movement in the 1950s and the 1960s. So thinkers like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks talked about self-care as self-preservation. And so in that context, especially for folks from marginalized groups, whether that's Black people, whether that's queer people, um, we're talking about self-care as a way to take back their power from oppressive systems that were basically, you know, fighting against them. And, um, and I, you know, and then in the decades since then, self-care has become totally commodified. And one of the interesting um, tidbits that came out of my research for the book was that um, in the United States, after election night in 2016, Google searches for self-care actually peaked. So, you know, as our world has become more and more chaotic and also with kind of the rise of social media, we've seen self-care become something that is really kind of performative. You know, it's like those Instagram pictures of like somebody sitting in front of like a mountain and they're just like in this Zen pose and it's supposed to be sort of like peaceful. Meanwhile, you don't see like all the chaos in the background of what's actually really happening. Um, I also think as a psychiatrist, we can think about the problem with faux self-care is also aligned with just the way in which it's so hard to find good mental health services in America. You know, it's hard to find a therapist that actually takes insurance. It's hard to find someone who's, you know, accepting new clients or patients, you know, talking about midlife, getting clear on like how much of this is hormonal, you know, what what is related to um, menopause and perimenopause? What is potential depression or anxiety? Is this something that's clinical? Like, how do I know what's normal? Like, getting real answers for those questions is so, so hard. And so, of course, it's so much easier than if you're just scrolling Instagram to see advertisements for, like, you know, some pretty branded vitamins that claim that they're going to cure all your problems to, you know, click buy on something like that. Right. And like you also say, the time involved to do that, people will probably think this is easier. I'll click that button and see what happens instead of really being able to find something that's really going to change them or help them for the better. I think also, you know, I have heard most of my life, if something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And that instant gratification is, is becoming stronger as the generation's come along. They really want instant information, instant gratification, instant resolutions. When, when it comes to mental health treatment, you, you talk about wellness activities versus mental health treatment. Can you discuss the distinction between the two and why instant gratification is becoming so prevalent? Yes. It was really important to me in writing Real Self-Care that I acknowledged that a self-help book is not treatment for depression or a clinical anxiety disorder. I think self-help in general has not done a great job yet of separating out what can be helped 
by sort of lifestyle interventions versus what actually requires um, professional help. And um, to answer your question, it was really important to me in writing Real Self-Care to make a distinction between what a self-help book can do for a reader, which is to ask different types of questions, to help you develop a new type of framework for your self-care practices. But a self-help book could never be a treatment for a clinical diagnosis like major depressive disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think it's really important that we talk more about, so I'm glad that you asked this question because I think um, especially in kind of our social media world, it's really easy to sort of like conflate the two, um, especially since there's so many therapists on social media. I'm, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm on Instagram, right? I'm, I do this as well. And I do think that it's important for us to be there as mental health professionals, because if mental health professionals are not in these spaces, then there's a vacuum that gets filled with a lot of nonsense. And, um, having a clinical mental health issue and seeing a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist or a counselor requires uh, an investment of time. You're you're going for 50-minute sessions once a week. If you're taking medications, you know, that's something that those need to be adjusted. Um, you know, I think that, like, I hesitate to point the finger at sort of, um, you know, if we're talking about like Gen Z, right, that's kind of like looking for a quick fix. I think that part of it is because they're so burnt out, you know, and they're kind of like living in this social structure and economic environment, frankly, that is just so much more um, stressful than previous generations. And, um, you know, I think that that's, that's one of the reasons with real self-care why I included, I have these little text boxes where it's sort of like, okay, when to seek professional help? What if I'm going through these exercises and, and thinking about boundaries or thinking about self-compassion and it feels too hard for me? Or what if I've been trying to set boundaries and I'm still just racked with guilt to the point where like I can't get out of bed because I feel so bad about myself? You know, those are what... So kind of naming some of those symptoms so that when folks are reading, they can say, oh, okay, I fit some of this criteria. Um, that that means that I need more. I need more than just this book. Um, but again, then we we do come up on the hard part of like, okay, well, then how do you find help? And that's part of what we're trying to do at Gemma, you know, the women's mental health community that I founded. Um, and two of my psychiatrist colleagues are also part of our leadership team. Um, we're not therapy. We don't prescribe medication. We're kind of this third space of community and classes. It's, you know, the masterclass for women's mental health is what we're calling ourselves, where you can actually get information from real experts who have the credentials, have been doing the research, are taking care of patients, and then are taking their time to... Or education, you know, uh, for, because I think we live in an environment now where we can't pretend like we can't, I can't just tell my patients like, Hey, don't Google this. Like that's <laughs> ridiculous. Of course they're going right. to Google it. Of course they're right. going to be on Instagram and TikTok. Again, coming back to what we were talking about before, the reason is because the medical system has failed women. Right. And so when we don't have doctors who, enough doctors who are trained in treating 
midlife and perimenopause and menopause, then you have to do your own research, right? And so my answer to that is like, okay, well then let's create a space where there are actual real vetted experts who are putting out evidence-based information that is reliable as opposed to like burying our heads in the sand and saying, well, just don't Google that because like, of course everyone's going to Google it. And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. Talk a little bit about Gemma, which you created with two other colleagues, because it does offer some obviously uh, experienced information that might help. Yeah. So the way that we have been structuring, you know, our programs and our classes is I think that uh, it's sort of like almost like professional education, like the type of teaching that we would do as psychiatrists and faculty at our various institutions. So I'm on the clinical faculty at George Washington University and and my co-founder, Dr. Callie Cyrus, she's a psychiatrist on the faculty at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Lucy Hutner, who is the former associate director at the Columbia Women's Program, actually the lead editor of the first American Psychiatric Association textbook for women's mental health, which was only published last year, which again tells you a lot about the state of science when it comes to women's mental health. Um, So, you know, we give lectures and presentations for residents and medical students and in academic setting, but I started doing this Instagram work back in like 2018. And I found that there was just this void of like anything that was actually evidence-based also, everything I found on Instagram at that time was very like kid focused. Like it was really focused on like, you know, how to deal with your toddler's tantrums or, you know, how to breastfeed or how to, you know, whatever, all those things. And I was like, well, where's the stuff for like moms, you know, and like, what about mental health for moms? Cause that was my expertise. So we started doing these Zoom Zoom classes. So it was like once a week and like our the expert would be teaching and there would be like a small cohort of women in the class and then there would be like an opportunity for communities. So whether that was on Facebook, we moved off of Facebook like after just the terribleness of Facebook. So now we have these WhatsApp threads. Right now we have a waiting list open from the for the midlife and mental health program and we're hoping wow. to um, have that up in 2024. Um, we've got a ton of interest actually on that class. Um, and so it really, it is an investment of time, but it's sort of like, let me actually hear firsthand from the people who are the real experts, are the faculty who, um, are, I'll also say folks who are in the social media space. So they know how to talk to a non-clinical audience, but it's not like, um, you know, I write for the New York Times. Like my my patients have really hard questions. We link to all the primary sources, you know, everything's cited. So it's sort of like, okay, let me take, you know, let me take six weeks and I'm gonna do this program and I'm gonna have all the information. And then I can, what we've seen with Gemma, somebody takes one of our programs and then they go to their doctor and they say, Hey, I'm reading this stuff. Hey, I took this class. Here's what they said. What do you think about this? That helps you feel so much more empowered to go to your, whether it's your GYN visits, you know, whether it's your psychiatrist or your therapist, and then say, this is something that I've really read up on. Um, Can you take a look at this? Like, what do you think? That's where we've found it to be really useful, not only in the pregnancy postpartum space, because that's another space where there's just a dearth of um, expertise, but also... um, 
in in this perimenopause menopause space, I have a feeling we're going to be kind of seeing a very similar thing. And then then I'll other say I'll also say the other lane that we're building in Gemma is also trainings for clinicians and providers. That's so important, so important, it's so right. important because the other piece is that a lot of this stuff is not taught in medical school and in residency. Or if it is taught, it's taught in a silo. So you have your OBGYN that learns about the hormones, right? And then you have your psychiatrist, me, who's learning about the psychology and the identity transitions, but then there's never the time to interact, right? So what we're doing is we're bringing um, like professional education training for all different type of clinicians and and experts. So whether that's physicians, whether that's NPs, nurses, midwives, lactation consultants, doulas, right? All the people that are kind of in those spaces to say, here's a, um, here are professional trainings by physicians who are bringing this holistic lens where we're talking about the mental, we're really centering the mental health piece, but we're bringing in sort of all of the uh, medical components as well. So that's kind of our, you know, we're, we're, I will be totally frank. We're bootstrapped. We're doing this ourselves. We, we don't make any money yet. <laughs> we're, we're just, yep. we're trying to put it together. Yep. Um, but it's to be frank, like founding Gemma was a real self-care decision for me because I found that when I was only doing one-on-one patient work, I was feeling hopeless about these larger systems. And there's only so many patients that I can see. And there's only so much that I can do as one person in my office. So it was sort of like, first I went to social media because it was like getting my writing out there, writing for the New York Times, like all these things are advocacy. But then it was like, okay, but I need to do, like I need to create something, like a different type of structure that um, can bring this to to more folks who need it, whether that's clinicians or, or whether that is, regular folks who just want to understand more. You also talk about the four steps of real self-care. I love, can you just touch on what those are? You don't have to go real deep because you can read the book if you want to really find out about that. (laughs) Yes, I thought those were really great. Yes, so there's four principles of real self-care. And those principles are, um, number one, setting boundaries. Um, We all know how important boundaries are. in the book, I share my conceptualization of boundaries, which is that I I uh, think of boundaries as the pause. So when I first started on the faculty at George Washington University, my mentor took me out for lunch and she was like, Pooja, like, here's my one piece of advice for you. You don't need to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail. You can see what they want. And then you can decide. And that was like a kind of a aha moment for me because, you know, I had been a med student and a resident and, you know, you always answer your pager. Like you can pause and then decide, right? That's the boundary. The boundary is the pause. And then you can say yes, you can say no, or you can negotiate. A boundary doesn't always mean that you're saying no, right? That's not a health, that's not healthy boundaries. They shouldn't be a brick wall. It's the pause. And then you get to decide. The next piece there, of course, is that when you pause and when you decide, oftentimes you feel guilty, right? <laughs> because you will be um, disappointing people, right? So in real self-care, I provide some tangible solutions for kind of like, what How do you what do you do with this guilt, right? Because the guilt is there. So how do we deal with that? And that's that's a really important piece. I think you have to tackle that at the same time that you're kind of 
learning boundaries because the two go together. The second principle is self-compassion. And when I think about self-compassion, it's not like mantras or crystals or like woo-woo stuff. It's really just, it's about how you talk to yourself. We all have that inner critic, right? That voice that's just saying, God, Pooja, like you're just so long-winded, you know, like you're really just, gosh, could you like wrap it up here? You know, you have that inner critic. And the, and, and so the self-compassion is you being like, okay, wow, gosh, ouch. Like, that's really harsh. You know, like, why don't I talk to myself like that? Where did I learn that? Right. I don't need to listen to that inner critic. Um, so the self-compassion bit is the logical next step after boundaries, because once you start to take back some time and some space for yourself, especially if you're a woman in kind of like, you know, older millennial boomer demographic, you have really been conditioned to then just be such a jerk to yourself about the fact that you just set a boundary. The third principle is about getting clear on your values. I think this is the hardest one, Um, but it's the crux because real self-care is about decision-making, right? And so your whole practice with real self-care is about starting to make new types of choices for yourself that are aligned with your values, your personal values, not the values of your mom, not the values of your best friend, not the values of your partner, but your values. And this is kind of an interesting one for me because I find that when you ask, when I ask my patients, hey, like, what do you really want? What do you really like? What do you really care about? People get really angry at me. Like, they're just like, Pooja, like, I don't have time. Like, I don't have time to think about what I want. Like, how dare you? ask me that question. Like, do you see my to-do list? Right? Like, so it's interesting. I think that that is often the reaction when we think about values, because especially as women, I think we just have spent so long thinking about everybody else that it feels scary and, and maybe like downright infuriating in some level to imagine that you could stop and pause and sort of consider yourself. Um, so in real self-care in the book, and I'll mention that there is an audiobook. I, I narrate the audiobook for those because I'm finding like a lot of people, nobody has time to actually <laughs> read a book. Um, I I come to the values question indirectly because again, I think you can't come to it head on because then it just makes people angry. So when you come to it indirectly, indirectly, I have these little thought exercises. So one exercise is, and this sounds really silly, but again, you have to come indirectly. Like imagine you only have $200 to throw yourself a dinner party what is that dinner party going to look like? It's really easy in that example to understand that every single person on the planet is going to throw themselves a dinner, different dinner party. And there's no one right dinner party. Right. And so you can imagine for yourself, like, Oh, I'm going to like, you know, we're going to have great music. Um, I'm going to have people dress up in costumes. It's going to be a potluck because I really value like diversity or like, you know, and and so I want to have like, people bring a dish from every different continent, or maybe one of my values is intimacy. And I want to look around and know that everybody in the, at this dinner party is absorbed in kind of like really deep conversation, or maybe for me, like humor and silliness is something that's really important. So I just want to make sure everybody is like laughing the whole time. Right. So you kind of do that. Then you pull out the values words and values have to be an adverb or an adjective. Um, 
So it can't be like, I value my family. Like, great. We all value our family. Like that's not helpful. Like it can't be a noun. Right. So you come, you bring out those adjectives and those adverbs. And then the work of real self-care is like, how do you thread those words, those values? How do those show up in your day-to-day life as you're talking to your teenager as you're thinking about decisions for caring for your parents that are getting older and maybe sick, right? Like where does the, and, and so I want to like also be really clear here. Like this is hard. Everyone's answers here are going to be different. Like I can't tell you what it is. Right. And that's the crux of real self-care. Like it's going to look different for everybody. I, I can't tell you what that solution is. You have to kind of work through these different principles and then see what comes out for you. And then see what those new decisions are. The last principle is power. Like this is actually power. And and I think that this is so important as we were earlier, like talking earlier about like Audre Lorde and black queer thinkers and how at its crux, self-care is about self-preservation. The reason that I can't give you like, here's the recipe, you know, here's the one thing that you need to do is because this has to come from you. And that is power, Right. That is power in actually taking the steps in your own life and identifying for yourself, like, this is what needs to change. And here's like how I can move forward. When somebody tells you like, hey, make a gratitude list every night before you go to bed, like that might work for some people. Great. But when you just absorb that and you say like, oh, I listened to this expert on a podcast and she said to make a gratitude list. Usually in that case, like maybe it'll last for a week and then you run out of time and you don't have time anymore. And then you just feel guilty that you're not doing it. Right. So it's really, it's like, you know, you, you, you teach a man to fish. What is, what's the, I, I'm going to mess you, it up. You give a man a fish. He eats for a day, but you teach a man a fit to fish and he eats for a lifetime. Something exactly. like that. Exactly. I messed it up too. No, yeah. that's exactly. And that's yeah. the whole concept of real self-care. Like you have to teach yourself. And, and these are four principles that are sort of like the guardrails and there's thought experiments in the book and like different reflective questions, but it's really about coming to like finding your own answers. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We will have um, all the links for Gemma and the book, Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included, which I love. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. It was absolutely such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So remember, guys, we're not saying that you should throw out your bubble bath or cancel your massage. We're just saying that there's true self-care comes from the inside out, not just the outside. You know, those are kind of quick fixes that instantly gratify you, but they don't long-term gratify. So thank you so much, Dr. Lakshman, for talking to us today and really just sharing what real self-care is. If you have any questions about this episode, you can check out the show notes on hotflasheschooltopics.com and then we'll have the links to her book and any, you know, links to her pages. She has an Instagram page. To Gemma. Yeah, to her Gemma. Gemma, yes. Yes, yes. Which we really didn't talk about in the beginning either, Gemma, which we're actually looking forward to her midlife section on Gemma, which she has coming up. Mm -hmm. So check that out as well. Make sure you're following us on all social media. Have a wonderful Mother's Day to all of the moms, whether two-legged or (laughs) four-legged children out there. Any mama. We hope you have a special Sunday and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.